This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Are you a good listener? Before you answer that, pause and think about it first. Most of us probably believe we listen to people all the time. But how much of what we think of as listening is really just some form of active hearing where we're waiting for our turn to say something clever or funny or thoughtful. That's not really listening. Or at best, it's a rough approximation of it, but one that falls short in some crucial ways. The truth is that most of us are quite good at acting like we're listening. We nod affirmatively and say, uh-huh, and yep, and for sure. Sometimes we even bust out the fake laughter to paper over a little bit of awkwardness when we need to. We do these things when people are talking because we know it signals the right thing. It's polite, but deep down, we're in our own heads. We're thinking about ourselves or God knows what. In other words, we're not listening. To the extent that this is common, and maybe even increasingly common, what price are we paying? What are we losing by listening less and less? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Kate Murphy. Kate is a journalist and the author of the book, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. This book approaches listening through a cultural and scientific lens, and it expresses how critical listening is to being a human. It's a few years old, but it's as relevant today as it was when it was published. So I wanted to have Kate on the show to talk more about the book and how writing it has shaped her own life. Kate Murphy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I normally do these podcasts on a video because I feel like it helps me connect with the person or establish some kind of connection with the person I'm talking to. And I guess in that sense, I always feel like it helps me pay attention to them or it helps me listen to them. But you didn't want to do this with with the camera on. And I'm only bringing that up because you said it would help you listen better if we shut it off. And I felt like that's a good place to start. Why do you think turning off the camera would actually help you listen better? Well, video images, the way they are digitally encoded, 
um, decoded, actually, altered and adjusted, and they're patched and they're synthesized. And that's why you get these artifacts that are blocking, freezing, blurriness, jerkiness. And it's and the audio is always a little bit out of sync. Yeah. And these disruptions, which are really below our level of consciousness, but they're still there, and they mess with your perception. And so your brain's always kind of a little bit scrambled when you're talking to somebody on video. I mean, they're great if you're showing people something on a PowerPoint or if you're showing the kids or just waving and seeing the person. But as far as having a really meaningful conversation, just a part of your brain is thinking, oh my God, what is going on? That's, that's where Zoom fatigue comes from. You've probably heard that term. Yeah. And so your brain is really straining to fill in those little gaps and to make sense of all that digital disorder. And so it just leaves you feeling kind of uneasy. And then beyond that, we're always looking for eye contact. We're always looking to have this facial emotional mimicry with one another that, again, is below consciousness. These little subtle twitches in our face, we're actually mimicking one another all the time. And when you're on video, that's all messed up because a lot of it is blurred out a little bit. This is, again, all to save bandwidth, essentially. And so, if you have your camera low, or I have my camera high, or to the side, we may look haughty, we may look subservient, we may look shifty. And beyond the fact that, let's be honest, everybody's looking at themselves (laughs) in the video, you know, thinking, oh my God, what do I look like? Or they're looking in the background, like, what is that painting? Or what books are on his shelf? And so, it's just, it's so much better for both of us if we just listen to each other. And there's also kind of that intimacy that we're in one another's ears and there's no other distraction. And, you know, beyond all the technological and psychological things, I feel like I'll be better able to concentrate on you and you'll be better able to concentrate on me. Okay, that's good enough for me. So why did you write a book about listening? I I heard you say that you never felt like you couldn't address a topic in a single article or a single newspaper column until this one. And that's a very interesting thing for me to hear. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell me more about why that is. Well, I mean, let's face it, most nonfiction books, they're magazine articles that got out of hand. And <laughs> really, they could have been done in 1,200 words. You know, I mean, that's that they just could have. Yeah. And I never wanted to write a book where people felt like I was wasting their time. I like being a journalist. I like giving people concise and helpful and useful information. So, you know, when I got to the listening, and it was really, it was for a story for the New York Times, I thought I was writing. And I just realized, oh my God, I can't do this. And not only I can't do it in this limited amount of space, but it's just too important. And it's something that is affects us in every way imaginable. And also just noticing what we've all noticed, that listening is becoming a lost art and people are really suffering because they are not listening and are not being listened to. My North Star in any of my writing is, is this helpful? And I felt like this was a really so important and the way I could be of most service. And it took a book to do it. You say that you've always been a, a good listener or a natural listener. Did you start to notice that you were having a harder time listening in your own life? Did you start to notice that other people around you were listening to you less and less? Is there some kind of big bang moment for this book in your mind? 
you know, it was a slow evolution that I think we've all felt it unless we were, um, there's the technology, that's the obvious thing. When we go out to dinner, the phone is on the table, just like it's part of the place setting, sending us this message that if you're not interesting enough, I've, I've got other options here. But there's also, the more I thought about it, I really was noticing that people were almost, when I did listen to them, which is my want, professionally as well as personally, that it was almost like giving somebody who's been on the desert a drink of water. (laughs) People were really, it's almost like people would be taken aback, and as a result, people would unload the most intimate details of their lives. And these are, you know, strangers I'd be interviewing, just even people I'd meet on the street. And the thing that was so poignant about it is when people would do that, they would say, first of all, just thank you so much for listening. And with almost the same breath, I'm so sorry. Like they had done something wrong. Like they had asked too much of me. And it really made me wonder that this is, you know, this is why we're here. This is the essential humanness to interact, to understand. And the fact that people felt like they didn't have their leave for you to listen to them. And then, you know, turning that around, nobody's listening themselves. It's what we're finding out now about this idea of isolation and so much depression and anxiety is because we're so disconnected from one another. Back in 2018, I had a pretty intense psychedelic experience, the first of my life. And, it, and I went through this period for maybe six months or so after where I was really sort of shaken up and it, it opened me up in lots of ways, cracked lots of things open. I mean, I won't, I won't go into the, too much of the details there, but when I came back, I was, I was really making an effort to pay attention to people. Yeah. And, you know, the easiest way to do that, the most direct way to do that was to really look at people. Mm-hmm when I spoke to them or when they spoke to me, whether it's on the metro or in the grocery store or, you know, whether it's my wife at the dinner table, whatever. I mean, I was really looking at people in a way I never had before and really listening. And I noticed more often than not that it actually sometimes would freak people out a little bit. Not used to it. People were so accustomed to not being looked at and not being paid attention to that they were sort of like, whoa, wait a minute, this is a little right. <laughs> this is a little much. Right. I wish I kept doing that because I had a lot of really authentic interactions with people during that time. And I sort of, as happens, kind of fell back into the default mode. And I do that less and less these days. But boy, that was an interesting period for me and an interesting sort of case study in what happens when you really listen to people. And it also made me more sensitive to how little I paid attention and listened to before. Well, that's the thing, though, that I really hope comes across in the book, that it's not a finger-wagging book. It's all of us. It's not that some person is just, they're a bad person because they're a bad listener. That's not the case at all. We've actually been conditioned not to listen. It's part of our culture. It's part of our society. If you think about when you're a little kid and somebody said, you know, your parents or teacher, you know, listen to me. Or listen up. Yeah, it's always bad, right? Yes, you you weren't going to like what was coming next. And also, it, it was almost this, okay, be submissive. And nobody likes that. And so, we're really, we, we have this association with listening that's very negative. 
So it starts with that and then continues on. And we have such this culture of speaking out and speaking up and speaking over one another. And we've already talked about that technology, not to mention just when's the last time you went out to dinner and you could really have a conversation. You weren't shouting at each other or felt like exhausted afterwards because you couldn't hear in the restaurant. So it's, it's, it's everything is getting in our way. We should try to define a little bit, if we can, what listening actually is to you and maybe distinguish it from a concept like hearing. These are concepts that are obviously related, but they have to be, they must be distinct in important ways. And I'm wondering how you distinguish hearing from listening, because I think that will help us better understand what it means to listen. Well, hearing is the perception of sound. You're detecting that something is happening, that somebody's talking. But listening is really taking what you're hearing and processing it. And part of listening is also detecting what's not being said, what perhaps the person is struggling to say. And so the art of listening is really getting to the point where you're understanding the other person. And part of it can be visual, looking at the nonverbals. So it's not just confined to what you perceive in your ears. And the end point is understanding. So that's your goal when it comes to listening. I love that. And I love that line of yours where you say, listening is not agreeing, it's understanding. You know what? <laughs> One of my pet hobbies is throwing shade at Aaron Sorkin. Um, <laughs> Every time I have an opportunity to do so, and you truly warmed my heart by taking a jab at him in the introduction to your book. You know, like what I've always hated about Sorkin is that people think of him as this like master of of dialogue, you know, but he doesn't really write dialogue, I don't think. He's master of monologue. Yes, he writes dueling monologues that masquerade <laughs> as these lyrical dialogues, but you know. His scenes in his movies are really like case studies and people hearing each other talk and then waiting very impatiently for their chance to perform their next speech. No one is listening. <laughs> no, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, I mean, lots of great speechifying, lots of great quotes, but no listening, no real dialogue. And yet everyone thinks he's the great genius at writing dialogue. Yeah, well, he's a genius at writing speeches and monologues. Yes. But as far as a really intimate back and forth where people were, are actually playing off one another and really doing that dance that a good conversation is where you have no idea where it's going to go and really understanding one another. It's, it's more sparring and jousting than conversing. Coming up after the break... We'll discuss the type of interaction I, and probably many of you, dread the most. Cocktail party banter. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. How do we know when someone is actually listening to us? And how do we know when they're not? Everyone knows <laughs> that you know it. I mean, you just know it behind your solar plexus. It's, it's just, it's that sense of connection and, oh, this person gets me. And really, I think the hallmark of when someone's listening is how they respond. The questions that they ask, the little details they pick up on. Again, it's this dance. It's this wonderful dance. And so if you're moving one way and the other person is just, first of all, stand, either standing still or going way off at another tempo, you know it. It's just, we're not dancing right now. You know, I don't know about you. I, I hate cocktail parties. Oh, I love them though. Oh God, I hate them. And I'm super uncomfortable in them. It's I always felt most out of place when I moved to D.C. when I was at some sort of function like that. And I guess the reason I hate it is because I, I just, I'm not good with small talk. I hate small talk. And maybe you can change how I think about this. But it always feels like an exercise in non-listening to me, like almost without fail, right? In these sorts of exchanges, you, you hear these questions like, you know, so what do you do? Or where are you from? You know, it's like, it's the start of this perfunctory exchange. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah where you're going through the programmed motions and it seems like no one's really listening and you hear a lot of uh uh-huhs and and head nods (laughs) and that sort of thing, right? You're looking around the room, right? What you have are people... Looking around the room, see who else is there. Doing this kind of choreographed dance and sort of acting like they're listening or performing listening when they're really not, right? Because it's it's just sort of like everyone gets that this we're all here to sort of, you know, grease the tracks, as it were, and and mingle and network or whatever, but it's not really listening. And I'm sure there are exceptions, and I'm not saying everyone is an asshole at a cocktail party. I mean, this is what I did too. It's what you do in these sorts of environments, but it's not really listening, right? Or am I being too cynical about that? No, no, you're not at all. I mean, you're picking up exactly what it is. And and I talk about this in the book, that when people ask you those types of questions, so what do you do? Do you have any kids? What part of town do you live in? They're not really wanting to get to know you or understand you. They're trying to rank you in the social order. Yes, there you go. They don't really want to listen to you. They just want to put you in the right file folder and move on. 
<laughs> it isn't a moment of humanity where you're really trying to get to know one another. And when I say I love cocktail parties, because I love watching that. <laughs> I find it fascinating because you learn so much about the other person because everybody is, they're really just waiting for your lips to stop moving. They're really not listening to you. Just, I mean, you've, you've totally nailed it. What they're waiting for is to do their PR pitch, their elevator pitch to you about who they are. And the thing I love about it is to get people off script. And who really are you? I know you. this is what you do and these are your kids and this is you know where you went on vacation. But to really ask them questions where you start having a meaningful conversation. For me, it's just like, wow, look at all these people here and they all have good stories if you ask the right questions. And they all do. They do. And anybody that you think is boring, you haven't asked the right question. You haven't given them a chance. To me, it's like almost walking into a library of the most excellent books when I walk into a cocktail party because you learn the most fascinating things if you give people a chance and knock them off the script. And not in a negative way, but just allow them. It's this idea of hospitality that you're accepting, you're open, and I'm really interested in you, which I genuinely am. Well, what's your trick? Do you ask those pre-canned questions in that way? Or do you have a different way of approaching those sorts of conversations? I mean, how do you get people to open up to you? How do you let them know, hey, I'm actually here. I'm actually listening to you. Well, I think it's part of when you're going back to talking about making that eye contact. Your eyes aren't at your phone. You're not looking around the room to see who's more important. You're not, you know, kind of twitchy when you're talking to them. Part of it's just being relaxed, but also ask them stuff about themselves, but not those ranking questions that we were talking about. One of the things I love is, it, it, it's really easy, you know, people act like, oh my God, you know, and they, they want something, and I understand, because people are nervous when they go into these parties. Everybody wants to be liked, and that's really the base of it. You know, please like me, because that's what we all, that's really all we want from people, you know, like me, understand me. And I guess if they want something in their back pocket, so to get over that nervousness of people not liking them, is, you know, you're all there because of somebody invited you. Find out what that, you know, how do you know the host or the hostess? That's a story. And it leads to another story, which leads to another story. I mean, I always just notice stuff about other people. Just, you know, really notice them. Get out of your own head and your own nervousness. You know, ask if they have a piece of jewelry on. Every piece of jewelry has a story behind it. You know, even if they got at a flea market, that's interesting. What flea market? Do you often go to flea market? You know, stuff like that. Or, you know, my mom gave it to me. Or an old boyfriend, we're not dating anymore. And then you get that whole story. And it's always fascinating. But it's really not hard. And I think part of it is because you do get knocked on your back foot because everybody is trying to rank you and it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think partly because of that, there's a lot of posturing that goes on. I mean, you, you know, you say that you're suspicious of people who are convinced of their own rectitude, I think is the way you put it. And, you know, like certainly one barrier to listening is, is being drunk on your own righteous bullshit. You know, I mean, it's hard to listen to, to anyone when you think you've already got everything figured out, right? And on some level, you, you can't really listen until or unless you've suspended 
judgment. I mean, you have to be wide open. And I think it's interesting to me that, I don't want to take credit for this, I heard you talk about this in, in another interview that you did. You were commenting on the lack of pauses in conversations, especially in our culture. And boy, that really is a sign that no one's listening. Because if you are really listening, you're not thinking about what you're going to say when someone's talking. You're just listening. And therefore, when they're done talking, you need a second to reflect on that. And if you've already got your, you know, Sorkin-esque <laughs> speech ready at the hip, as soon as they're done talking, then you know they were just waiting for their turn. And that happens a lot. It really does. And apparently that's a, that's a very American thing. It is. It is. They've, they've done studies in many different cultures. Western cultures are the most guilty of it. Why is that? Do you have, you have a theory on that? You know, I think it's because, you know, from my interviews during the book, but also just in my traveling is a, again, I'm going back to this hospitality. In a lot of Asian cultures, there really is this idea of serving the other person first <laughs> and really being hospitable to the other person. And it's just culturally, it's seen as rude to jump in immediately and boasting places like Finland. I mean, that really, maybe that's one of the, why it's one of the happiest places on earth because people don't jump in. But it's really seen as rude that you would automatically jump in like you're too big for your britches. And also, there is this sense of anxiety of not wanting to lose face. And so, the quickest way you can lose face is to open your big mouth <laughs> without having listened to what's going on. And so, there is this hesitation before saying anything. And that can go you know, too far, of course. But to me, as a journalist, I'm sure you've found this yourself, that if you're just quiet, the person will keep talking. And usually it's taken them this long to really figure out what they wanted to say. The most important nugget is what comes in the end after you just allow them to really put their thoughts together and maybe overcome their anxiety and also really figure out, okay, she is listening. And she isn't going to—I really like how you brought up—I don't want to get off that because that's such a good point about people being so convinced of their rectitude, because that has gotten really worse since I wrote the book, this idea of people laying in wait. So people are afraid even to talk, which is another aspect of listening, because if people are afraid that you're going to jump all over them, they're not going to tell you anything. You're not going to hear anything good. Because they're so scared that they're going to say something where you and your virtuosity are, are going to tell them, you know, shame them, outwoke them, whatever. And so they're not really wanting to say anything. So my book is not only about listening when someone's talking, but also really what are you missing? There's so many things you're not hearing because of how you present yourself in the conversation or the questions you don't ask or the things you don't pick up on or don't notice by being a poor listener. And it really impoverishes you as a human being, but also in your relationships. It's just listening is everything in terms of human relationships. Yeah, it's really true. There's not an answer. There, there are surely many answers to the question, 
why are we listening less and less? I mean, I, technology is always the first thing people bring up, and um, I, I get that, but I do think it is a significant factor here. I mean, my feeling is that one of the consequences of this sort of digital revolution is that it, it has engineered a lot of anxiety because so much of our life now is is mediated by these screens and so much of it is moved into the virtual space, it is incredibly easy to avoid actual human interaction. <laughs> and that's tempting because being in the world, dealing with, with other people can be awkward, <laughs> like super awkward and risky. And you don't really have to run any of those risks at home on the computer because you're you're in control and a lot of it's anonymous. And the more you flee the real world, I think the harder it is to go back <laughs> and the more anxious you are when you do. Oh, absolutely. We saw this happen during COVID where people felt after they had been isolated for so long that they felt really uneasy and out of practice. Social interaction is something that's like, it's a skill and listening too. And the less you do it, you know, use it or lose it. It is something that you constantly need to refine and work at. I love how you use the word control because we all like to be in control and there's this illusion of control online because indeed you can wait to respond, you can ghost, you can shut it off, though nobody really does. They, <laughs> but there is that idea of being in control, whereas if you're in a conversation with someone, you don't know where it's going to lead, you don't know what they're going to say. But I think another thing that's really important is that human interactions are the most complicated thing we ask our brains to do. And our brains are metabolically really, really expensive. And what I mean by that is that our brains take up only 2% of our body weight, but consume 20% of the calories. Damn, is that right? Yes. Anything that cuts down on our thinking time, we naturally, we're physically lazy, but we're also intellectually lazy. And I say that in just in a kind way, because this evolutionarily, we want to conserve energy. And so it's not only that hard to get up and go take a run or something, but it's also, you know, to get up and go interact with somebody, it's so taxing. You're using up so many calories that we're built to not do that. You know, we want to be around the people that we, that's why people don't like to meet strangers because it's more complicated. You feel like you figured out the person that you already know, but the new person, you're going to have to do a whole lot more cognitive work. And so people resist and, and they become really entrenched in their, as you say, in their ideals. And they're really convinced of their rectitude because, you know, that's the easy way. That's the lazy way. If you have to start questioning and you start being open to other things, then you have to do some work. You have to do some intellectual work. But that's what makes you the best human being you can be and makes you just like, you know, when you go out and you exercise and you feel really good afterwards and it's so good for your body and it makes you live longer and it makes you happier. Same thing when you do that exertion with your brain. It's the most rewarding thing you can do, but it's that hurdle <laughs> where you're evolutionarily, you're saying, oh, you know, let's conserve. You know, I may need that energy later. <laughs> let's not do that.
how do we think and listen at the same time? Is that even possible? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Do you think that we can think and listen at the same time? I mean, I, I certainly feel this. I'm working on feeling it less and less, or, or maybe I should say I'm working on caring less and less about the judgment of other people in this respect. But I do think a lot of us are genuinely anxious about not knowing what to say or appearing dumb or disinterested or, <laughs> or whatever. So we are constantly thinking about what we're going to say next. And is that incompatible with listening or there is some skill that you can develop where you're thinking, even if it's in a very sort of low-key way, but still listening in a very active, attuned way and not merely like, you know, just waiting for your, your turn to, to talk and, and mentally writing your speech in your head when the other person's lips are moving. Well, I think we've all been in conversations where we've lost track of the time and we've been so immersed in it. It's almost like reading a wonderful book or getting really into a movie when you're talking, but it's, you know, it's back and forth and you're not self-conscious. That's the key to that feeling where the time just went away and you feel totally in sync with this other person and the self-consciousness is not there. So it is incompatible. But I take your point. It's all of us. We want to be liked. And to really develop that skill to put your own anxieties and away, then you really need to cultivate. That's part of the practice of listening is, is learning how to lose yourself in somebody else's narrative. Yeah. But I liken it to meditation almost, where you acknowledge Okay, I'm, you know, either it's the anxiety or you're drifting, like, you know, what am I going to get for dinner later or you know, whatever is popping into your head and acknowledge that, but then return to focus. Whereas in meditation, you return to focus of your breathing or mantra. With listening, you return your focus to the person who's talking. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. But I also have to say, again, you know, listening is hard. It's a mental exertion almost. I mean, it's joyful and it's wonderful and it's you learn so much. But as I point out in the book, air traffic controllers who have to listen very carefully so airplanes don't crash, they're only allowed to listen for two hours at a time without taking a break. So what we're talking about, that kind of listening, is something that you can't do it all day long. We have to make choices and you have to cut yourself some slack that sometimes you may drift because you just don't have it in you at the moment. 
And those are really the best times for me. Got, you know, I'm fortunate I have a job where part of it's listening and part of it's thinking and writing. But even in my personal life, I know at certain times that I just can't take anything else in. And so I just let people know that I'm really interested in what you have to say, but let's circle back. And because, as we talked about earlier, people know when you're not listening. Even little kids know when you're not listening to them. And so you just, if you can't authentically be in it at that moment, give yourself a break. Let the person know, circle back. And you don't always need to have these perfectly connected because you're not. Don't expect that of yourself for sure. You're so right. Just because anyone can listen doesn't mean it's easy. I forget who you're quoting in the book. Um, I think it may be Pascal Bruckner, um, but it was about modern individualism and how that's a barrier to listening because we're all trying to sell ourselves in order to be accepted because that's, you know, that's how you win in this social game that we're all playing. It's how you gain status. And certainly you're aware there's a deeply worrisome spike in teenage anxiety and depression, especially among teenage girls. And and use of, of social media seems to be really heavily related to this, or it's supercharging this desire to perform and judge and chase status in the virtual world. And the virtual world is a world in which, for reasons we've already said, actual listening is, is really just not even part of the, the program. It's chasing those likes. Yeah. And that's quantifiable. But I use the analogy of junk food. Because it's social media and texting and email, and it, it is an interaction to some extent because you're getting a little bit of feedback. You're having that go back and forth. But it's, it's like eating junk food. It's like eating processed food that may taste sort of like a blueberry, but, you know, blueberry-flavored whatever. But it's not quite it, and it's certainly not nourishing. Whereas being with another person and really listening and having that back and forth, and there's so much that goes on when you're in the presence of another person that's below our conscious awareness that nurtures us, that causes the release of these feel-good chemicals between the two of us that you don't get, and the research is very clear, you don't get it online. And so it may get you by, like, you know, having some M&Ms, you know, give you some quick calories, those likes, uh, (laughs) some type of response online, but it's not going to sustain you. The research you talk about, so Yuri Hassan, I think. um, Yeah, neuroscientist at Princeton. Yeah, they they hooked people up to these fMRI scans, and you you can actually see what happens to the brain when people really connect. You know, they, they actually do sort of sync up. Yeah. Well, what they did is they hooked up speakers and listeners to fMRI machines, and they tracked their neural patterns. And when there was this moment of understanding, the transfer of memories, feelings, information, when there was that sense of connection that we've all felt, it actually shows up as these patterns actually sync up. They mirror one another. The lines will be all over the place in the beginning, but once there's that connection, it's just this smooth overlap of these neural signals, these firings in our brain. 
And I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now <laughs> describing it because when you see it, it's just measurable proof of what we've said for centuries, this idea of somebody being on the same wavelength, of syncing up, of really being in tune. And it's all true. And the research now, it's not only in our neural patterns, but it's things like respiration. It's our heartbeats. We sync up so completely with one another. And that is what, go back to this word of sustaining us, that is what nourishes us. That is what releases all these feel-good neurochemicals that make us feel okay, that make us feel safe, that make us feel happy. So when you were talking about these staggering numbers of depressed, anxious, isolated, suicide attempts among not only teens but adults, the age of human beings now, I mean, in the United States, the mortality rate, Instead of living longer, we're living shorter periods of time. And I'm convinced that a contributing factor is because we don't have those healthful interactions, social interactions with one another, because it's so detrimental. They've connected all of this to stuff like cancer and things that we think of as physical, but they come out of not having that sense of social connection, that syncing up which is what listening allows. It's, um, it's really self-transcendence, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a grandiose term, but that's really what we're talking about. I mean, we, I've mentioned uh, Simone Weil quite a few times on this show, mm-hmm. a really brilliant mid-century French philosopher. And she said that attention was the purest form of generosity, but she had this, uh, this notion of decreation, which for her just meant this activity of really emptying ourselves of ourselves, right? Just being completely open to another human being. And she would use the word attention for that, but she was really talking about something very close to listening in the sense that you mean it. And doing that is not just a way to genuinely connect with another human being, but it's also a way for you to kind of transcend your own, your own self, your own neuroses and your own selfishness and your own whatever. And that is good for us. It's good for our souls. <laughs> and it's good for it's good for the people we're connecting with as well, right? And we just it's a hard thing to do and we don't do it enough. You know, I think I would argue against the emptying out of yourself hmm. because you're really bringing your whole self to it. And I would say instead of like this decreation, I think of it as more of a co-creating because the understanding that you develop between the two of you, there's a mutuality here. It isn't just a total giving over. It is very much a back and forth. You can't play a game of catch where only one person's doing the throwing. And I give the example that, you know, that talking without listening is like, you know, touching without being touched. You're always poking the other person. But if the other person is just feeling like they're just getting poked the entire time because they've emptied themselves out or not allowing themselves to touch back, There is a mutuality and a reciprocity here. And part of being a good listener is how you respond and how you evoke other things in the other person and trigger memories for them and things that are 
poured back and forth between the two of you. So I'm not so sure it's it's a totally emptying out and just sitting there. I don't want it to sound like we're advising people to just, I don't know, be this empty vessel. Yeah, maybe maybe emptying is the wrong word. Maybe it, it's it's more about pausing and suspending your own conceptual baggage, right? Your own biases, your own ideas, your own predispositions, your own assumptions, whatever. Just suspending that and truly listening to what someone else is saying in a spirit of, of genuine openness. And then only after you've done that, you can can you actually understand them and then maybe come to some some mutual understanding on, on the other side of that. But if you don't, if you can't go through that act of suspension, you never actually see the other person. And if you don't do that, then the possibility of, of dialogue, the possibility of mutual understanding is closed off. The walls have to come down for sure. Yeah, that's really, I think that's really what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And there's also the getting rid of that self-consciousness that you brought up earlier, because that really gets in the way. It's just like earplugs. If you're just if you're anxious the entire time of, you know, how can I get this person to like me? I hope this person likes me. Does this person like me? It's really hard to listen to them. And it also can distort what the other person is saying. And it's a real easy trap to fall into because, again, we're human beings. We want to be liked. How did the experience of writing this book and, and thinking it through change how you listen? I mean, I know you said you've always been a good listener, but Surely, you must have learned quite a bit about the art of listening during the process of writing the book. Did it evolve your practice much? I can't say it did so much, but it just made me more aware of what was going on. It was humbling because there's so much going on that's outside of our awareness when we're listening and how important it is to really be present. You know, I can talk to people on the phone and, you know, I love my iPhone as much as anybody else, but to just realize how that really impoverishes our relationships and to really make that effort of when I'm talking to somebody, it's not going to be in the car when I'm going somewhere. If I want to touch base, I mean, and I'm not saying you can never do that, but if you want to call somebody and really have a meaningful conversation, you just have to realize that you need to sit down and really listen to the person. And you get so much more if you take the time to really be in that person's presence. And I've really made the commitment to make sure that that comes first, that I don't have digital relationships or I don't demote relationships to digital relationships because they won't come back. I mean, we should all want to be better listeners for a hundred different reasons. I mean, maybe the first of which is that it's essential to being a decent human being. But but also, and I think this is something you alluded to a little while ago, it's essential to being a good friend or a good lover, a good partner. I mean, how many relationships die on the vine because we stop listening? I mean, really listening to the other person. It is the easiest way to erect a wall between you and another person. And something I never heard of until I encountered it in, in your book is this idea of the closeness communication bias, right? Like the more you know someone, the more you start to think you know what they're going to say, then you know what they think. And so you just naturally stop listening. And that's a road to nowhere and certainly nowhere good in a relationship. And I think a lot of us fall into that. Well, it goes back to this idea of 
what's metabolically expensive. And so we're always, we're, human beings are, are pattern seekers. And so once we've been with somebody a while, we feel like, okay, we've got the pattern. I've got you down. I know you like the back of my hands. I know what you're going to say. And when you go down that road, which is really natural, we know each other so well, you know, we think for each other, we finish each other's sentences, that you get to the point where you're not listening. And the thing that's so wonderful about human beings is that we are changing and evolving every minute, every day. So you and I are not going to be the same person tomorrow as we are today. Just even after this conversation, we're a little bit different. And so if you stop turning the pages of the book that is the life of your partner or your child or your friend, you're going to be so many chapters behind that you're not going to know the person anymore. That's where you get that classic, I don't know you anymore, or you don't know me at all. Well, probably not. Because you've you stopped listening. Yes, you've stopped listening at a certain point because you think you figured them all out. You don't need to know anymore. Because I've got this pattern down. And it is a recipe for disaster in relationships. You mentioned children, and you talk about the curiosity of children as a model mm-hmm. for listening. I mean, are children in their own weird, sometimes obnoxious ways actually the best listeners among us? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, anybody spend any time with a toddler. Because first of all, they hear everything you say and they repeat it back to you, particularly the most embarrassing things that you don't want them to. <laughs> uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. they, they pick up on everything. And not only what you're saying, but they have this sense of what you're not saying, about where you're going, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, because they're really paying attention to you. They're watching everything you do because they're trying to learn and everything's new to them. And they, they're they just curious, and they want to know about you. I was visiting a friend the other day, and her two-year-old was just, you know, I was the new person. And I mean, he wanted to know everything about me. Tell me about your shoes. Tell me about your, I mean, just everything. I mean, kids are wonderful that way. And I, I really think what we should study children so we can go back to being that way. Just everything is amazing to them because it's so new. They don't have this sense of, you know, okay, I got that. I got this all figured out. I've seen that before. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's some interesting neuroscience here, actually. That's We've learned in part because of some of the, the renaissance, really, in, in psychedelic therapy and some of the, the research that's going on there, right? Like, we know now that certainly at least part of the reason kids are such good listeners is that the part of the brain, um, I think they call it the default mode network, but the part of the brain that's responsible for what we think of as the ego really doesn't come online until relatively later in life. I mean, 11, 12, 13, don't quote me on that, but but something like that. It's that self-consciousness that's like earplugs. Yeah. Right. There's no self-consciousness. There's not that same level of neurotic self-talk and anxiety. There's no self to decreate, yes. <laughs> to go back to what I was saying earlier, right? Yes. And we go through life and we fall into these grooves of perception and awareness, and we actually stop seeing things with fresh eyes, including people. And therefore, we stop listening and we lose that sense of wonder. We lose that sense of curiosity. And one of the casualties of that is we stop, we stop listening to people around us, people closest to us, oddly enough. And yeah, it's not good. <laughs> We should be more like our kids in that respect. Absolutely. 
Well, and also just, you know, being unafraid to ask questions. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, the the joy of my job and your job too, is you, you have license to do that. You, you can stay a little kid like, you know, why did you do that? And what made you who you are? And who are you? And it's okay to do that. I always like to end conversations like this on a constructive note, you know. So anyone who's listening to this, who sincerely wants to become a better listener, Apart from from buying your book, which I genuinely recommend, where should they start that quest? How should they start that quest to become a better listener in their own lives, even if it's a small thing? I would tell anyone that when they're going into the conversation to have two goals when you complete the conversation, to be able to answer two questions. And the first question is, what did I learn about that person? And the second question you should be able to answer is, how did that person feel about what we were talking about. And if you can answer those two questions after your conversation, you're well on your way to being a better listener. It's an easy first step. But just if you tell yourself, I've got to be able to come away from this conversation, being able to answer those two questions, you'll be good. Yeah, you know, and I was going to ask, what's the greatest reward of being a good listener? But I guess that's really it, right? I mean, it... it, (laughs) It's amazing what you can learn about yourself and the world and other people when you just shut up for a second and listen, (laughs) you know? The thing that makes us happiest in life is when we connect. And you can't connect if you don't listen. Once again, the book is called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. It's really a wonderful, essential book. You should check it out. Kate Murphy, this was an absolute pleasure to talk and listen to you. It was great listening to you. It was fun. Thanks so much. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I say this a lot, but I really love this conversation. Kate was a great conversationalist, and she was as present as you'd expect someone who wrote a book about listening to be. And it was a real treat to talk with her. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. You can drop us a line at the gray area at box.com. And if you appreciated this episode, Share it with all your friends on all the socials. All that stuff really does help. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.